Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that Consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I'm exploring some films of the Soviet silent subgenre, as recommended by David Bax of Battleship Intention, and in this week's episode, I'll be talking about Sergei Eisenstein's 1925 film, Battleship Potemkin. Um... But a few, well, actually just one important update before I get into the actual episode. If you listened all the way to the end of my uh, introductory episode with David Bax, you may notice or, or you may remember that I had a sort of a, a stalled or a, um, a, a, a sabotaged plan to um, text David a random GIF every single day without context because now I had his um, mobile number and I wanted to make myself a pestering presence in his life. But when he uh, revealed to me that uh, there was another friend that was already doing that, uh, though that was a specific focus on gifts specifically dealing with Loki and Thor, or was it Loki and Iron Man? Loki and Iron Man, I think. But anyway, um, since that kind of derailed my plan, I had to think of something else to do um, to make myself a pestering presence in his life since I now had access to his mobile number. Um, Off mic, uh, we settled on... (laughs) By we settled on, I mean... I came up with an idea that every day I was going to text him a YouTube video of Steve Winwood's song, Back in the High Life Again. I don't remember where this came from. Uh, it started because we were having a conversation of maybe it was Phil Collins, and I mentioned that song, misattributing that song to Phil Collins, when actually it was Steve Winwood. Um, but as a joke, he said, maybe you could send me that every day. And so I wanted to update you, the listeners, that yes... That is indeed what I have been doing since the Friday in which I recorded the episode with David. I have been texting him once a day a YouTube link to Steve Winwood's official music video for Back in the High Life Again. And as of this recording, it has been 12 straight days that I have sent him that video with a different preface, sometimes just the video itself, sometimes a message about, uh, you know, relevant to Easter or whatever day it is, but I can assure you that I am going strong with texting David every single day something random and without justification, and I'm sure it's only a matter of time now until he snaps. But enough about that. We are here, of course, to discuss Sergei Eisenstein's classic 1925 film, Battleship Potemkin, which if you were to ask a film student, a film professor, a film scholar, a film enthusiast... What are some examples of classic, defining uh, cinematic masterpieces? Uh, this would certainly be uh, listed up there along with, you know, uh, The Great Train Robbery, you know, one of the very first moving pictures that was shown to the public, or, you know, Citizen Kane, uh, or, you know, um, unfortunately, and hopefully they would mention this with some type of context, but Birth of a Nation. But these films, which were really um, important for how they pioneered something um, with the specific visual medium of film and filmic storytelling. Um, Battleship Potemkin is up there. And as I said to David um, on the uh, the introductory episode, 
I remember this was one of those films that I heard so much about in film school, and then when I finally actually saw it, thought that it lived up to all the hype, all the importance, um, specifically within the context of this is a film which was made in 1925, and yet how, I don't want to say how coherent it was, but basically just how good of a, of a film it was without having to add the caveat of, oh, but it's a foreign film, and it's a silent film, and et cetera, et cetera. It just, it stood up on its own as a very good film, and also um, added to that being a very important film and a very path-paving film. Um, I'm going to preface this review and discussion by saying that I watched this uh, film on a, on a Roku, and so most of the titles that I access are through uh, whatever streaming devices, or, or, or I should say streaming services or apps are offered through Roku. And so with this one specifically, I was using the Prime Video app, and if you are using the Prime Video app on Roku specifically, I can't attest for if you're accessing it through a laptop or a mobile device or something, but through the Roku-specific Prime Video app, if you search for Battleship Potemkin, you will get four different versions. And I will explain to you what those are if you are curious to revisit it or you are just um, watching it for the first time. Um, here are the four versions you have. Uh, the one that I watched and am basing my review on, which is a, a the film itself with afterwards a, a documentary, a short documentary about Sergei Eisenstein, which tracks in about an hour and 58 minutes. I did not watch the Sergei Eisenstein documentary, but if that is something that is of interest to you, there it is. Um, this one, I, I can't attest to the quality of other ones, but this one was kind of really badly interlaced. Um, anytime there was kind of significant movement, if you know anything about... Um, Film production, video production, video compression of anything, you know what I'm talking about when I say it was very interlaced. It was at first kind of distracting. I got used to it, but um, I'm assuming this has something to do with the video file itself that they were using for this. Um, and I have to believe and, and or hope that the other versions uh, have remedied that situation. But um, the second one is, is, is a, a version that I have to imagine did remedy this. It was the restored Kino edition. That's K-I-N-O, the, the distribution company. Um, that tracks in at about uh, an hour and eight minutes, which is, you know, generally in the area of what the film should be. There's a, a version that you can access only if you have a Fandor subscription. Um, and I believe that one should be fairly uh, standard, except it tracks in at an hour tracks in. I keep saying tracks in. Clocks in at an hour and 14 minutes, so I'm not sure where that additional, additional six minutes come from. And then there was a enhanced edition with no dialogue. And I assumed that that meant uh, there was no talking text slides, uh, which of course would um, kind of, you would assume, compress or expedite the runtime of this movie. And yet that one clocks in at an hour and 12 minutes, which is four minutes longer than the standard one that I watched. Um, and if you think that that is blasphemy and that the film should not be viewed under any context in which was not originally meant to be viewed, such as dialogue being taken out, that one is currently unavailable anyway. So I'm not even entirely sure why it comes up as a search result. But um, I'm going to start with a, a little bit of history and historical context for what this film is rooted in. And I will get to why that is important, um, because... One of the things is, of course, I, I try and use this podcast as sort of a, a um, low-budget um, film school in a way, both in terms of exploring those important titles that uh, you know we, we quote-unquote should have seen for the first time, but then also discussing what makes them important and also kind of breaking down you know basic kind of general filmmaking techniques. 
Um, and so this is this kind of film that you're going to see or you're going to study it if you're in film school in a very kind of specific context. You know, your American Cinema One courses, which kind of get into, you know, early narrative cinema. And then, well, not even American cinema because this is a, uh, a Soviet film. But anyway, but, but basically in an introductory class or an introductory or basic filmmaking history class, you are definitely going to come across this. And you are not only going to talk about the path-paving film techniques, which we will get to a little bit later, but you're also going to be talking about the historical context of the film specifically because um, basically you cannot have one without the other. The historical context and the... Um, the government-specific funding, the state funding at the time, was so instrumental in its making. In such a, a, a I mean, I mean, this was funded by the 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 you know Soviet government at the time. And part of what makes it such an effective film, not just an important or notable film, but also a very effective film, is the presence, I can not the presence of the state, but the influence that the state has in it and what it is saying about the state that is producing it. So this, of course, as David mentioned, it depicts uh, the, I guess you want to say, failed 1905 Russian Revolution um, in which the, uh, you know, the, so the, the revolt on the battleship Potemkin was a real thing, um, but it was part of a revolution that ultimately did not um, overthrow the Tsar at the time. He stayed in power, but, uh, it's, but it did set the stage for um, the October Revolution in 1917, which Vladimir Lenin called the, the, quote, the great dress rehearsal. So, you know, kind of without this initial failed revolution, you wouldn't have, or, or not that you wouldn't have that one, but uh, I mean, basically this laid the groundwork for what would ultimately be the revolution that overthrew uh, the Tsarist government. Um, um, and in that 1917 revolution, so keep in mind, this movie is being released in 1925 after that re uh, the October Revolution has um, succeeded, after the, the USSR has been established. So it's basically looking back on this um, failed uh, yet idyllic, um, idealist, I'm sorry, and um, symbolic um, uh, act uh, and, and, you know, as kind of being a moral victory and kind of being what the party that is currently in power is all about. So... Um, Historically, what sort of happened was uh, that the, after the, the October Revolution in 1917, there was an insurrection and an election that resulted in the abdication of Tsar Nicholas II um, and the, the loss of the power of the uh, Russian provincial government. Um, the Second Congress of Soviets consisted of 600, uh, 670 elected delegates. 300 of those were Bolsheviks, and roughly 100 were uh, leftist social revolutionaries. Um, and then, of course, in 1922 is when the USSR globally uh, or was recognized globally, um, because even after the 1917 revolution was successful, the, uh, the the USSR was still not globally recognized as like the the you know the the dominant or or, or the the governing power in the country that didn't happen until 1922. I probably should have prefaced this to anyone who is either um, a, a a Russian listener of mine, uh, or if you are a history enthusiast um, or a film history enthusiast, um, or all of the above at the same time, because. I by no means claim to be um, uh, an expert when it comes to history. I am especially, especially not an expert at all and not even very knowledgeable when it comes to Russian history. So I do apologize if I get any of my facts wrong, if I am misrepresenting something. Um, this is not me coming from a place of I know everything. It's more of just I did a little bit of research to kind of flesh out the historical context because of how important is to the or, or was to the creation of this film and now is to the 
understanding and interpretation of this film. So if I have gotten anything wrong or you want to elaborate on something, please do feel free to shoot me an email at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com. But um, this film actually, upon its release, was uh, censored and, and banned in um, a lot of countries out of fear of spreading communism. Uh, France banned it until 1953, which was after the death of, of Joseph Stalin, and the UK banned it until 1954. And in fact, it was uh, rejected in a, it was rejected for a UK um, cinema certificate in 1926, and that ban remained in place until 1954, when it was finally released, under the caveat of being released with an X certificate. So if you are at a very esoteric bar trivia, in which the question is, this is the one thing that Battleship Potemkin and Human Centipede 2 have in common, it's that they were both categorized as X films in the UK. Um, so there's a little, uh, a little uh, a Venn diagram that you didn't think existed, and yet there it is. Um, and as I said, I, I have to include the historical context, or I feel like I have to include the historical context, because of how intertwined the ideology of the state and the history behind um, everything that this film depicts, how important it is for this movie, because this isn't just a... a um, this isn't just a film like, uh, you know, uh, romantically looking back on a, you know, a, a celebrity's life like a biopic where it's sort of like they gloss over the hard edges or something like that. Being that this was a film funded by the state and made as a literal piece of propaganda, once again, a lot of the things which made this an effective film, especially when it comes to who are our protagonists, why do we connect with them? What's their relationship like with an antagonist? And just all those sort of like basic filmmaking techniques that you kind of learn in like a, you know, a, a filmmaking 101 class. They are all in here and they are all tied into basically what a, a citizen would have thought about or, or what the, the government would have wanted a citizen to think about the USSR at that time. Um, you can't have one without the other, basically, as I said. Um, but let's talk about the propaganda first, because um, anything that I'm going to say about the, the path-paving filmmaking techniques or um, you know the things that we see in this film, which have now kind of become commonplace in contemporary films, anything that I talk about of that has been said probably a thousand times, a thousand million, billion, trillion times in film schools all over the world, so I'm not really adding anything to the conversation as much as just... Here's another film snob talking about how great or important this movie is. Um, in the long tradition of uh, film snobs talking about how great and important this movie is, everyone knows how great this movie is, or at least everyone kind of has an idea of how important uh, this movie is. Um, even if you've never seen it yourself, you've at least been told about it, or for some reason Battleship Potemkin is standing out in your head as like, well, this is a film that I should know about for some reason. I'm not really adding anything more to the conversation that um, I'm not adding anything to the cultural lexicon because it is already in the cultural lexicon and has been for decades. If I may quote the late, great Roger Ebert in his great movies column when he wrote about this, he says, If today it seems more like a technically brilliant but simplistic cartoon, Pauline Kael's description in a favorable review, that may be because it has worn out its element of surprise that, like the 23rd Psalm or Beethoven's Fifth, it has become so familiar we cannot perceive it for what it is. Which is a really smart thought and just this idea of we've kind of been told so much about it that we kind of have taken it for granted or maybe not taken the time to watch it or maybe have watched it at some point and just kind of forgotten about how, no, this actually was 
really important and really great. But first, let's, as I said, let's dive into the propaganda side of this, what makes it an effective, um, and I guess is it, con- is it controversial to say good piece of propaganda? Because um, once again, it's not just a flyer, it's not just a, you know, a painting. This is a film, and a lot of the filmic techniques which make it a good film also made it a very effective and very good piece of propaganda. So obviously, I mean, on the surface and just kind of based on the general description, it's this story of um, the working class or the proletariat, uh, you know, kind of being the, the good guys, if you will. They, you know, the, the, the sailors who start this insurrection, who start this uprising, they are our protagonists, even though a lot of the characters are pretty much one-dimensional they're, they're supposed to be symbols. They are not supposed to be characters. They're supposed to be symbols for this revolutionary spirit, this sticking up for the proletariat, for the working class, basically. Um, they're the good guys. They are, you know, they have the moral right. Um, and, and I don't say that in the sense of, like, inalienable rights, but in the sense of correctness. You know, they are morally correct. Um, they are the victims. They are the oppressed. Um, and it's, it's sort of, a you know, once again, to kind of, think about this in a uh, contemporary context, I don't even want to say contemporary context, but to kind of think about what this film was doing in 1925 by looking back at the 1905 revolution and kind of holding it up as a symbol of rightness and goodness and correctness, um, you have to look no further than basically a lot of, basically any American movie which depicts the American Revolution, Um, whether that's, uh, you know, the HBO miniseries, um, John Adams, or whether it's, um, you know, uh, The Patriot with Mel Gibson, or any, any kind of movie that looks back on that and just kind of romanticizes uh, the revolutionaries, you know, the founding fathers, the people who fought in the Revolutionary War. And I don't make that comparison to cast moral judgment one way or another, because one thing that I guess consensus has come around on, <laughs> as though it took a while, uh, was communist Russia was not great. Um, you know, sure, there may have been some ideals from Vladimir Lenin, but then, you know, not too soon after that, Joseph Stalin took over. And we all kind of know how that played out. And then, of course, um, the decades of um, complications that played out in there. And once again, I don't want to speculate or, or even talk about that because I am not an expert or even an enthusiast on Russian history. So I don't want to get too much into that. But it's more of just drawing this comparison of being that we are in power now, that the American revolutionaries won over their British oppressors, that we have been in power, that we have been the dominant force, this, you know, democratic force for hundreds of years, we can afford uh, to maybe paint over some things, to gloss over some things, to kind of romanticize a few things about the, uh, you know, the American Revolution and kind of think like these revolutionaries were the good people and British, the British Empire, they were the bad people. This is incredibly simplistic, of course, you know, but we, we, we remove some of the elements such as, you know, like, sure, the Founding Fathers were great and brilliant when it came to um, forecasting or brainstorming a, a government which sort of had to be the compromise between states' rights and a, a strong federal government, but then also, let's be honest, our, a lot of our founding fathers, maybe arguably all of them, were white supremacists that owned slaves. And that is not to say that this is an indictment on the American Revolution or American revolutionary figures as much as it's just, here's an example that we can see now in our day-in, day-out contemporary life, and I'm sorry that this is so specific to an American audience, because I know I don't have, not all of my listeners are American, but see any movie that depicts the American Revolution, and 
it's going to have that same romantic quality to it. It's not going to focus on, you know, the kind of the darker parts of it or the flawed parts of it. It's going to kind of say, like, this was a beautiful and wonderful thing that got to this beautiful and wonderful place which we are at right now. Um, one uh, Another piece of, of how you can tell that this is a, a was meant to be an effective piece of propaganda is how uh, religion is not depicted kindly. I mean, when we first see that that uh, that priest, he's fucking crazy looking, right? He's got the look of like a drunk wizard. He's got this huge like set of hair, and he's got like kind of crazy eyes, and he's just he's basically kind of his he's um, telling the revolutionaries to kind of like you know uh, to to turn away. Basically, it, it's sort of he's invoking God to bring justice to the people who are trying to overthrow authority. You know, it's, it's sort of that, uh, you know, that, that idea that some people use nowadays and sort of like, well, we have to submit to the government because God has put the government in place. You have that priest as that figure. And seeing as he is against or he's condemning our heroes, our sailors, our insurgents, he himself is a bad person as well. Or he is at least a villain. He is a, he's a contrary force, basically. And even when we have the Odessa step sequence later, um, I'm sure this was, you know, not a, a creation because if they are filming on the Odessa, actual Odessa steps, then I have to imagine the architecture was there already. But in the background, as the soldiers are marching down the stairs and slaughtering civilians, there's a church in the background. And I guess someone could argue that that was probably just accidental because the church was just there. But seeing as Eisenstein did so many inventive and um, ingenious things when it came to making such an effective film, I have to believe that that he positions the camera in such a way where you're noticing the juxtaposition, the contrast, or at least the comparison between these evil, brutal soldiers and the church building, the cross kind of just being cold and unmoving in the background. Um, the USSR did uh, move to establish um, state atheism because at the time, you know, before this revolution took place, um, the Russian Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, the tongue twister for some reason, was uh, deeply in integrated into the uh, the autocratic state. So basically, making it like the official religion of the state. So one of the things that the um, you know the Soviets and the the Bolsheviks wanted to do once they took power was move away from that and basically kind of a, basically establish state atheism. So churches, religion, specifically the Christian religion, was not very well thought of at the, you know. In, in the in the Soviet uh, you know in the Soviet Russia in the 1920s so that is depicted in this film as well um, and similarly when it comes to uh, propaganda and even once again romanticizing and kind of let's say um, creative liberties when it comes to telling your stories uh, the sequence at the Odessa steps was fabricated uh, which is quite actually interesting or at least it, it was it was fictionalized the it was inspired by um, the Bloody Sunday massacre which happened on January 22nd in 1905 um, and you know it was kind of a it was repurposed basically for um, for the Odessa step sequence which is <laughs> once again when it comes to if you think of this as a piece of propaganda was such a smart idea to fictionalize this event and make it look like you know just kind of use it as a like these imperialist like brutal soldiers how they just trample over literally how they just trample over people and brutalize people and just these innocent poor working class people um it's such a 
visceral. I was surprised by how visceral it was, especially when it comes to the soldiers who are who are stepping on and trampling over the poor child. Um, such an effective tool to kind of elicit an, an emotional reaction from the audience. And similarly, an interesting thing is like the soldiers who are doing this, they are faceless and anonymous. Um, we see their boots marching down the steps. We see the silhouettes of them, or we see them uh, way off in the background, or we see the people fleeing from them, or they are shot from behind, but we never see the faces of the soldiers who are partaking in it. Because to our filmmakers and to the audience who are watching this, to this to the state, they are not people, you know? They are a force, and that is a force of evil. That is a force of brutality. It's quite an effective way to dehumanize your enemy, basically, to not show their face, to just make them a mass. You don't make them a person. You don't make them a human anymore, um, which if you, if you, you know, here, if you, if, if you hear kind of people who fought in war, there is that, that idea of just sort of, if you don't know the person, if it is just an anonymous person, if you just think of them as, you know, a, a, an enemy instead of a person like you are a person, it becomes easier to cast your hate upon someone. It's actually quite an effective technique when it comes to eliciting an, a, a reaction from an audience who is watching this. Um, on the other hand, our, you know, our quote-unquote hero, um, I'm going to probably butcher the pronunciation of his name, um, Gregory uh, Vakulinchuk, um, you know, the, the one who kind of inspires the other sailors, you know, I believe he's the one that says, like, uh, when, when, there's, when there's about to be the execution on the ship, he says, brothers, who are you shooting at, basically, or, you know, or, or you know, um, he is killed. He's killed pretty early into the film, basically, and um, it's funny, because we, we know him, he is a credited character, he has a name, um, the film identifies him, and, he, and he's pretty easily identifiable because of, uh, you know, because of his mustache, we can pick him out amongst the crowd, um, but after he inspires this insurgency and then he is killed, there is no leader anymore amongst these people, amongst these sailors, amongst these revolutionaries. There's just the group. No one is in charge. There is no leader. There is no authority figure. It is just the people. It is just the masses. And that is inspired by his death. He becomes a martyr. He has to die in order for the the, the goodwill or, or the the the... Yeah, the goodness of the group, basically, to, to rise to the top. You know, he, you know, because of his sacrifice, the good of everyone um, is now, you know, at the forefront of, of everyone's mind. And then he is, his body is, is, is put out and his body is displayed with a candle and, and he, is, he is shown to the masses as a symbol. He is a symbol of this revolution. He is a symbol of the fact that we need to get rid of this authoritarian force. You know, seeing his body and seeing that sign, I, you know, I was killed over a bowl of soup, inspires these people, inspires this this flood and this mass of people, which then in turn um, causes the the army and the the the, the military forces to come out um, in full steam. And the last one, which I think is interesting, is um, color coding and how costumes codify what you are going to think of a person if they are good or bad now i i know next to nothing about russian history i know even less about um you know naval etiquette or anything that has to do with army attire or or power structures or that sort of a thing so for all i know if you were in if you are in the navy or if you were in the navy at that time and specifically in uh, 1905 perhaps 
the way that or, or or the depictions that you're seeing of the sailors and of the petty officers on screen, perhaps that's completely accurate to how they were dressed at the time. But I find it interesting, and it immediately cued me in without having to have a line of dialogue, without having to have a title card explaining it to me. It immediately cued me into, I know who the good guys are, and I know who the bad guys are. Sure, I'm watching a film called Battleship Potemkin, and it's about an uprising on a ship. And so if there's going to be an uprising on a ship, it's going to be the sailors who do the uprising. But all the sailors are introduced to us dressed in white. What is white? It's purity. It's goodness. They are the good guys. They are the morally right guys. The petty officers and the commanding officers are all wearing dark colors. The petty officers are wearing, you know, uh, dark coats. Um, but then the, the guy on top, Commander Golikov, he is dressed entirely in black. His jacket, his shirt, his pants, and his shoes are completely black. So when he shows up on screen, you immediately know this is the head bad guy. You know, if you're, if you're thinking of this of, of a video game, you know, he's the end boss, basically. Um, and all these other officers are just his henchmen. The color quoting immediately tells us who should we be rooting for and who we should be rooting against. And once again, that may have been an actual historically accurate thing. But by depicting that in a context of a propaganda film in which it is telling us these are the right people. These are symbols and, and heroes of our eventual revolution. It's an effective way to put that into an audience and to plant the seed in their mind or to just, I guess, basically at the time blatantly telling them outright, here are the good guys and here are the bad guys. Um, that may have been, once again, a historically accurate thing, and it's, but it's also not something which is specific to this film. That is iconography that carried on through literal generations and decades of filmmaking, um, which is a good segue to kind of get into. Now, let's talk a little bit about the, the path-paving or the, the groundbreaking um, filmmaking techniques. And I don't mean to say this in the sense of Eisenstein invented all these things, but certainly the things that we are seeing in this movie which we are also continuously seeing in films nowadays, were not being utilized as frequently as they were then, but he utilizes them to such a degree that it makes, almost 100 years later, a very effective piece of visual art. And we'll get to the montage in a little bit. Everybody's heard about the montage. If you've watched this film, if you've studied this film, if you've ever heard about this film, the one thing you hear about is montage. And we will get to that in a little bit, but you're all familiar with that by that time. I wanted to highlight a few other things, a few little things that I thought were just really cool personally. Um, one of the things is which is Eisenstein, he, he basically shoots coverage. And, and it, was, it was something that was just kind of, a, you know, kind of poking at me in, in the back of my head when I was watching this. But it's just this idea of like, I, I'm noticing just how many shots he was using to depict a scene, how many different angles he was getting. And then it hit me like, oh, he's basically doing coverage. He has many different shots and many different angles of the same conversation of the same sequence taking place. He's doing a thing which nowadays is sort of commonly thought of as this is just common filmmaking technique. If you are not shooting coverage, you're probably being a you're probably shooting things too quick or you're not covering your bases, you're not going to have enough footage that you need when you need to get into the edit. If you need to cover something or if you need to uh, swap in a mistake or sort of that thing, we have coverage. And of course, 
that's, you know, I, I say that, you know, people are always doing coverage. It's, you know, not a literal always. I mean, uh, independent filmmaking certainly uh, does, you know, does things in their own way. And certainly um, there are, 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 are many different ways to, to, you know, to break an egg, basically. There is no one way to make a film. But when it comes to nowadays conventional Hollywood studio filmmaking, you shoot coverage. You shoot coverage so that you have your bases covered if you need to cover a mistake in editing or that sort of thing. And he's basically doing that. You know, if you, you look at a lot of silent films, especially a lot of silent films from the 1920s, things just kind of play out in one take or in one angle or a sequence happens in front of us and then the cut is going to the next scene or into the next room or, you know, the camera only cuts or there is a, a new scene basically I, I kind of was just talking in circles. In a lot of early silent films, there is a cut only when you're moving to a new scene or a new sequence or a new location. This is a film which has many different cuts, all within a scene, all within a sequence, and it's a lot of different angles. It's getting, you know, shot, reverse shot, basically, or it's getting a like an insert shot to kind of clue you into uh, a mood or how you should be feeling or how the character is feeling. Um, there's a sequence when a, a, a sailor is washing a plate and the plate has the Bible verse on it, you know, give us this day our daily bread, which is part of the Lord's prayer. And he, you know, it's a very simple sequence on paper. He's washing the dish. He notices the text. He's angry. So he lifts the plate up and he throws it to the ground and smashes it. But when he throws it to the ground to smash it, there's about I'd have to say at least four cuts just in that sequence. So we're seeing about five different shots of this guy smashing this plate on the ground. And the fact that it is kind of kinetic in that way, it not just kind of adds a, 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 a quickness to it, but also an emotion to it. You feel the frustration because you're kind of getting jerked back and forth visually, which is sort of like how this guy is feeling if he's been getting jerked back and forth when it comes to what he has to deal with on a daily basis. Um, it was really, it was really fascinating sequence to me. Um, and also just, you know, he, he has, um, shots in there and he has footage in there, which kind of, um, not even add anything to the narrative, to the story, which is playing out, but just kind of set the environment. There's, um, a couple shots and they're just of, of sailors at work in different areas of the ship. There's one guy who's cleaning one of the cannons. There's some other people who are polishing something and there's, um, you know, some people working on machinery, but it just kind of, we see these different people working in different locations of the ship and it's not through the POV of a main character. It's not kind of telling us in or, or, or cluing us into anything. It's just kind of setting the, 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 the day basically this is the daily life of one of these sailors this is what they do on a daily basis it just kind of sets um builds an environment basically we kind of know what their lives are like just by you know throwing a few of these shots in here um there's also a, a lot of uses of invisible editing um and if you're not really familiar with what invisible editing is i guarantee you see it on a daily basis if you're watching uh you know um a movie or a, a single camera TV show. Um, invisible editing is basically um, when there's action taking place and the cut is on the action um, and it's done to draw attention away from, uh, or it's, I'm sorry, it's done to draw your attention to the action and away from the cut. Um, this could be 
you know, something as simple as, uh, well, it, it's done in, in this film um, when there's a, a commanding officer and I, I couldn't get what his what the character's name was. He looks kind of like James Cromwell in my mind. So just think of the James Cromwell officer when he's uh, there's a wide shot of him in a doorway and he turns his body or he turns his head to kind of look at some uh, sailors who are behind him. And while he's like and halfway through his body's turning, we cut to a close up of his face in mid turn and we complete the turn of, of, of his head um, until it's directly kind of looking back at the camera. That's an invisible edit where, I mean, there is a there is a, an edit there. There's a cut there. But what's not important is the cut. The cut is supposed to draw attention to the action in that specific instance. The cut is supposed to draw attention to his head turn, to him noticing the sailors behind him. It's a very simple technique, and I guarantee you see it every day, but you're not necessarily always paying attention to it because it's not the, once again, it's not the cut that's supposed to be um, important. It's what the cut is emphasizing. It's the action that the cut is emphasizing, which is supposed to be the important thing. This is a very, I was watching this and thinking like, oh, this is a very modern technique, but it's not a modern technique. We're seeing this in 1925. This is just an editing technique, which we see in a modern basis or, you know, in a contemporary situation every single day. But the fact that he was using this in 1925 and using it effectively, you know, what that cut does in that specific instance, it kind of draws you to the menace of this captain, commander, whatever he was, in which he's basically kind of looking back at his complaining sailors and he's 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 turning a blind eye to them because we get a look at his face, it's a little bit menacing, and then he turns around and just sort of leaves. It draws attention to this guy and it draws attention to kind of how menacing he is. It's an invisible edit and it's absolutely wonderful. Um, and then, of course, there is montage and we can talk about montage now but once again i'm not going to add too much to the conversation because what hasn't already been said about montage and what eisenstein has done and of course when we say montage what you immediately kind of think of now is maybe even something kind of comedic if and i hate that i'm referencing this movie but if you saw team america world police um there's a song in that like uh the montage song like even rocky had a montage and that's what we think of when we think of montage. It's like a training montage or a, a, a series of, you know, shots that are cut together that are supposed to depict how things are kind of changing over time. You do see this a lot in, in like maybe a superhero movie because there's something uh, or, or even a sports movie because of like training, basically, of like we're going to get ready for the big game. You know, we've you know, we, we got our butts kicked in the last game, but we're going to work harder than ever. And then we have this montage, which is typically set to music. Maybe there's some voiceover uh, narration underneath it um, in which you kind of see the team getting stronger and changing and getting better at the things that they were terrible with. Or maybe in you see in a romantic comedy where um, one of our protagonists has broken the heart of the other one and you kind of see them stewing over things over time or one is trying to kind of keeps making the effort to kind of get back he's standing outside her door and he's maybe ringing the doorbell and you know she's not answering she's kind of huddled up on the couch you know it's basically it's a collection what we see it now and especially in a lot of hollywood films the conventional way we see it is just kind of a collection of um shots to kind of depict time going by and things changing uh, a lot of times with a music track to kind of evoke some type of emotional reaction from you but when Eisenstein was thinking of montage, when a lot of these early Soviet silent filmmakers were thinking of montage, there was a different connotation. And as I've done many times before, I'm just going to 
quote Roger Ebert because he said it so much better than I can describe it to you. And once again, this is coming from his Great Movies article, um, which I will put on the Facebook page so that you can read it um, later. And he says, Eisenstein was a student and advocate of Soviet theories of film montage, which argued that film has its greatest impact not by the smooth unrolling of images, but by their juxtaposition. Sometimes the cutting is dialectical, point-counterpoint fusion. Cutting between the fearful faces of the unarmed citizens and the faceless troops in uniform, he created an argument for the people against the czarist state. Many other cuts are as abrupt. After Potemkin's captain threatens to hang mutineers from the yardum, we see ghostly figures hanging there. As the people call out, down with the tyrants, we see clenched fists. To emphasize the shooting victims were powerless to flee, we see one revolutionary citizen without legs. As the troops march ahead, a military boot crushes a child's hand. In a famous set of shots, a citizen is seen with eyeglasses. When we cut back, one of the glasses has been pierced by a bullet. Eisenstein felt that montage should proceed from rhythm, not story. So it's basically this thing of like montage is not just how images play out in, in, in to kind of get from point A to point B in time or story, but images should be juxtaposed with each other. It's this idea of evoking strong emotion from you by putting one image next to another image. We talked about it, Dave and I talked about it in the, introdu in the introductory episode, but the Kuleshov effect, that idea of showing a picture of a guy's face and then showing a picture of soup. What are you feeling like? Well, he's probably hungry. And then that same picture of that guy's same face and then a picture of a baby. Maybe he's feeling longing. Maybe he's feeling lonely. Maybe he's feeling depressed. It's these different emotions that come to you because of how two images work with each other or against each other. What does that elicit from you? What kind of emotions are they trying to elicit from you? As a Soviet filmmaker making a piece of propaganda, he is trying to elicit anger from you, at least anger when it comes to the czarist state, and celebration or joy from you know, these sailors. It's, just a, it's a wonderful idea. It's, it's this fantastic idea of how images are supposed to work with or against each other to elicit emotion from you. And that's what was entailed, and that's what's meant when we hear about montage, and what it ultimately became is just like, it, it kind of became a punchline when we hear about montage now. The training montage, the the love montage, you know, the fight montage. Basically, it, it's it kind of, you know, is meant to express a change in time instead of a, a change or, or a change of emotion, basically. Um, and then, of course, the things that he was referencing in that, in that paragraph were from the Odessa Step sequence. And the Odessa Step sequence, even if you haven't seen this movie yet, or it's been a long time and you haven't seen it for a while, you have seen to some degree, the influence of this film, specifically when it comes to filmmakers trying to duplicate the Odessa step sequence, whether that's um, intentionally to kind of evoke something which is dramatic and hor horrific or in a comedic way. Um, the two most famous examples that I can think of off the top of my head are Brazil, um, Terry Gilliam's Brazil, which definitely, you know, that um, it was very much trying to reference that or, or, or it was... <laughs> Sorry, I'm stepping over, or I'm stumbling over my words here. Its inclusion in Brazil was very much an homage to the emotional truth or the, the emotional um, uh, environment of um, Battleship Potemkin 
in the sense of the forces that are doing that are sort of these um, horrific anonymous soldiers who are trampling over these these innocent people. So Gilliam's very much trying to evoke the same thing that Eisenstein was in 1925. And then in uh, Brian De Palma's The Untouchables, um, which I am less clear on because I saw that movie a while ago. And to be honest with you, I didn't really care for it that much. Um, perhaps one day I have to have a guest on here to talk about Brian De Palma because that is a filmmaker who um, I just cannot connect with very well. But um, I can also post on the Facebook page an article from The Guardian which uh, lays out another uh, a few other films in which um, the step sequence specifically has been homaged or referenced or ripped off, which just once again goes to emphasize how iconic of a film this is, how influential of a film this was, how over 100 years later they are still using some of the same exact things that Eisenstein did in 1925 to elicit a reaction from you. Um, it is a... Absolutely wonderful film. It's a very effective film, uh, and I was um, kind of surprised when I first saw it how how much it worked. And, and rewatching it again, I was reminded of how great of a film it was, and how also um, I won't say good or bad, but how how effective of a piece of propaganda it actually was. Um, if you need to see this for the first time, or you need to revisit it, as I said, I watched a version for free on Prime Video. There are um, a many, many other ways uh, in which you can watch it for free as well. It comes in Hoopla, the Criterion Channel, Voodoo Free, Canopy, um, what is this one right here? Fandor, um, Fubo TV, um, Watch TCM, and Flixfling. Those are all ways that you can watch it for free. They all provide subtitles for you. I believe of those, Voodoo Free is the only one that will also play ads when you have to watch it. Um, but you can also rent or buy it on Fandango Now, Voodoo, um, iTunes, Amazon, and um, Flixfling as well. So that does it for my, uh, <laughs> looking at the time now, long um, revisit down uh, or, or, or walk down film school memory lane with uh, Battleship Potemkin. Feel free to email me or correct me if you notice anything that I uh, misrepresented at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com. You can follow me at um, Nolan Fixes Teeth on Twitter. Um, and you can also follow my other podcast, uh, The Cast of Cthulhu, which I do with James uh, James McCormick on a bi-weekly basis. Um, we just recently posted uh, last week an episode on Stuart Gordon's From Beyond, and next week will be Stuart Gordon's Dagon to celebrate um, the works of the late great um, theater director and film director Stuart Gordon. So that does it for Battleship Potemkin. Be sure to tune in next week where I'll be covering the film Mother and where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 